I really appreciate the work that our worship ministry team has put into this morning. So it's right for us to say thank you, Lord, and thank you to them as well. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew? Uh, We're going to start with Matthew chapter 27. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, we've been going through a series called The Story that has been tracing the great themes of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And today we are on this chapter of the resurrection. Everything centers around this event. This is the most important story in terms of the truth of the gospel and what Jesus Christ accomplished by his death. And today we celebrate a risen Lord. So I'd like to pray for the message and then pick up the story in chapter 27. Father, thank you that we can come before you today, that we can hear the words of Scripture, stories that you intended for us to know, and that were written down for our benefit that we might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is risen and alive, and he is here even with us today. And I thank you for that. Thank you for the change that you still make in people's lives, just like you did back then that you still turn hearts and lives around when we come into a relationship with you because you are the living God. And so, Father, would you bless your word today in the preaching of it? Would you guide me and speak through me today and what it is that you want to say and minister to your people who have come this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love Easter Sunday. Just like many of you, you would probably say that this is the most exciting day in the church calendar, the most exciting day of the year. We come on Easter morning with a sense of anticipation. We come expecting to celebrate the resurrection and to sing sing songs that really fill our hearts with praise. And we talk about the hope that we have in Christ. And all of that is because Jesus Christ is alive and our hearts are filled with joy. And if we feel that way today, can you imagine how the disciples must have felt that first Easter morning when they saw Jesus raised from the dead? I mean, their joy was even greater because of how bad they had felt the day before. Think of all that they had gone through on Good Friday, for example, when they had seen Jesus crucified. They were with him when he was arrested and taken away into this kind of kangaroo court of a trial and charged with blasphemy, when he was scourged and then put to death on a cross. And they saw all of that happen. And then they saw his lifeless body taken down from the cross and laid into a tomb. The stone was rolled in front of it, and with that stone it seemed all of their hopes had died as well. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. He's supposed to be the conqueror, the one who would overthrow our enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. They didn't understand what had happened. And they were discouraged and they felt defeated. For them, Saturday was a no hope, no courage kind of day. Have you ever had days like that? Days when you felt like things just were not right at all in your world. And it seemed pretty dark and gloomy. Maybe there were circumstances where maybe it was someone in your family who had passed away. Maybe it was an illness or an unexpected loss. Or maybe it was something tragic that had occurred and you just felt like that day was kind of a no hope kind of day. That's why we come today. 
That's what the resurrection is all about, to instill hope and to give us courage as we face the challenges that we do in this life. You know, if you think about that first Saturday, the only ones who were pleased that day were the religious leaders who wanted Jesus killed. And they're thinking in their mind that this is good. You know, there's no more Jesus, no more false hopes, no more talk of a Messiah, no more people kind of rallying behind Him and getting us in trouble with the authorities or with the Romans at that time. No more blasphemous claims to be God. But it's interesting that the religious leaders were also nervous because they had remembered Jesus' words. It's almost ironic that they were the ones who remembered his words and the disciples were kind of forgetting that. The religious authorities remembered that Jesus had said that on the third day he would rise again. And so they wanted to do everything that they could to prevent the disciples from stealing the body of Jesus and circulating a false rumor about him. We read about it in Matthew 27, beginning at verse 62. It said, the next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And then we go on to read. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. And come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples... He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, and now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. How interesting it is that the religious leaders were worried that the disciples would come and steal the body of Jesus because they had remembered his words. But we know from the story that the disciples had no plans at all to steal the body. In fact, they had lost all hope and they were worried that they might be next, that they might be crucified or arrested and put to death in some way. And so they were hiding in fear because they were afraid they might lose their own life. But the resurrection changed everything. We're going to take a look at the importance of the resurrection today. And what we see, first of all, is that the resurrection vindicated Jesus. It validated his claims to be the Son of God. Several times, Jesus had told his disciples what was going to happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. 
In Mark's gospel, Mark records three different occasions when Jesus said that he would suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and that they would put him to death, that they would turn him over to be put to death and killed, but he would raise, be raised again on the third day. And so we read about these uh, statements of Jesus that were so specific that he would suffer and die and rise again. And yet in Mark's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 32, it says that the disciples did not understand this. And they were afraid to ask him about it. You know, I don't know if they just didn't want to seem stupid or uh, what it was, but they would hear it and it just didn't make sense to them. How can the Messiah die? That's not what's supposed to happen. And they didn't want to ask Jesus. It was only after his death and resurrection that they understood these things. Paul writes about the resurrection and he said in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. And in fact, Jesus himself staked his teaching and his reputation on the resurrection. In John 8.28 he said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. When you see me lifted up, when you see me put to death but rise again, then you will know that I am indeed the Son of God. So, how can we know it really happened? I mean, we weren't there to see these events firsthand. How can we know? Well, we need to look at the evidence, and that's why these Gospels were written. So that we might read and come to an understanding ourselves of who Jesus is. And if you will look at the evidence with an open mind like you would examine any evidence in a court of law, you would find that the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of the resurrection. I mean, look at the physical evidence. There are some who have questioned the death of Jesus and kind of suggested that maybe he just fainted on the cross. You know, maybe he just swooned. And when he was taken down from the cross, he wasn't really dead. And when they put him in that tomb that was cold, he somehow revived and was able to come back to life and, you know, push away the stone and come out and make these appearances to the disciples. But that just doesn't fit with the evidence at all. Anyone who will take a look at the evidence and understand what Jesus went through in his suffering, the scourging, the crown of thorns placed on his head, his crucifixion and how painful that was, the spear that was placed into his side and his heart, and you will understand that Jesus truly died. It's hard for me to believe that anyone would question that at all. The greater mystery concerns the empty tomb. Where was the body of Jesus? And to those who did not believe in him, they tried to explain it away. Everyone knew that the tomb was empty. No one could produce the body of Jesus. And so the chief priests and the elders began to circulate a story and they bribed the Roman guards to tell others that the body of Jesus had been stolen by the disciples. And they said, if you guys get into trouble over this, well, then just come and see us, and if the report gets back to the governor, we'll tell him what really happened, and we'll keep you out of trouble. And so that is what happened. The soldiers and others began to circulate this rumor that somehow the disciples had come and stolen the body of Jesus. But do you really believe that these men who were so frightened that they all fled from Jesus when he was arrested 
would somehow rally their confidence, overpower the guards, or come while the guards were sleeping and roll away this stone of several hundred pounds, not wake them up, and somehow carry the body of Jesus away. And then tell a lie that he was risen from the dead. It just doesn't fit with their character or what we, what we know from the story itself. The disciples were frightened. They themselves were not looking for a resurrection. And it was only after they saw the risen Lord that their lives were changed. We also have the evidence of the grave clothes in the tomb. And when Peter and John saw those grave clothes lying there, it wasn't like somebody had in haste taken them off of the body and cast them aside. They were laying there where Jesus had been laid. It was like his body had simply vanished and the clothes were left there behind. And the scripture says in John 20 that when John saw it, he believed. John saw and believed what had happened. You can have the evidence of his enemies, like the Roman centurion who stood at the cross of Jesus. He was a man who had witnessed many crucifixions. He understood the horror of the cross. And when he looked at the way in which Jesus died, his courage, his strength, the things that he said from the cross, he said, this was no ordinary man. And he declared, surely this was the Son of God. We look at the lives of his followers and we see changed lives these men went from fear to faith they went from being scared and fleeing before the cross to after the cross and seeing Jesus alive to boldly declaring that truth even at the risk of their own lives they would testify before all who would listen that they had seen Jesus alive he's the risen Lord he is at the father's right hand If these men had made it all up, do you really think that they would have died for a lie? And that all of them would have kept a closely kept secret until the very end and that one of them wouldn't have said in order to try and spare his own life that it was a lie? None of them would do that. All of them died as martyrs except for John who died in exile. The reason for their transformation was the truth of the resurrection they had seen Jesus alive. You have the eyewitness accounts, the Gospels, that tell not only of his death and resurrection, but of his miracles, his teaching, the response of the people, the things that he said, no one spoke like him, no one did miracles like he did, no one had the power that he demonstrated over sin and death, over nature, over uh, people's lives in terms of illnesses and even raising people from the dead. And then you have the prophecy fulfilled over uh, 60 major prophecies in the Old Testament that were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And these prophecies tell about his birth and his death, his ministry, his betrayal, the price that would be paid for his betrayal. They tell about his burial with a rich man's tomb even. I mean, details that are beyond the control of an individual to try and set them all up. All of that is there for us to take a look at. And legal experts who have done that through the centuries have declared that the evidence would stand up in any court of law. But the evidence will only take you so far. There are reasons to believe, but it still comes down to an act of the will on our part. 
where we hear the truth of the gospel and our eyes are open to see Jesus and we surrender our heart to him and say, Jesus, will you forgive me? Will you be my Savior and Lord? The resurrection validated Jesus' claims. The resurrection also defeated death. Death is universal. It is that last great enemy that we face. And it comes to everyone. You and I will die someday. And what happens then? What is there beyond this life? Is this life, you know, just it and then that's the end of everything? For those of us who are believers, we believe that we will rise again. We will see Jesus. We'll be reunited with those that we love. And we will spend eternity in that new heaven and new earth that he is preparing for us. But even those who don't believe in Jesus have this idea that there's got to be more to this life than just what we see. And why is that? Why is it that so many people, even those who aren't Christians, believe that there has to be more than just this life? I was reading this week an article in Christianity Today that was written by Philip Yancey. And a number of years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book called Where is God When It Hurts? And he said, you know, because of writing that book, he's been asked to speak at many difficult situations and places through the years. And he had gone to Newtown, Connecticut to meet with the families of the parents or the parents who had lost children in that tragic shooting that had taken place there in their school. And he said, you know, if you were to ask those parents, I mean, is this life it? You know, is this all there is? Or do you believe that you're going to see your children again? All of them, all of them would say that they believe that they are going to see their sons or daughters again. They just believe that there has to be more than just this life. And Yancey said, you know, sometimes I turn the question around instead of asking where is God when it hurts, I ask the question, what if there is no God? Where is no God when it hurts? Do you really believe that we are just cosmic accidents? That we live meaningless lives in a universe of random events and detached indifference and that things like this shooting are just simply senseless and there's no meaning to it, but there's no meaning to life either? And when you die, you die and that's it? Nobody wants to believe that. Everybody wants to believe that there is something redemptive, that there is more to this life. He said, following the Apostle Paul, most of them hold tightly to the hope that the existence of their son or daughter did not end on December 14, 2012. But rather, a loving God will fulfill the promise to make all things new. He talked about one mother who sat in that firehouse and it was just agonizing, waiting for the news. Is her daughter alive or dead? What has happened? And as she's sitting there with her thoughts, comes this overwhelming sense that her daughter is okay. Her daughter is safe. And only later would she realize that her daughter was safe in the arms of Jesus. And she would write several weeks later, she said, when I close my eyes, I see my daughter cradled in his hands. He is sending us comfort in ways that only God's angels could know. She is with God and she is at peace. And when I could not find her, I felt a calm fill my heart. And then I, I knew in that moment that she was with God. I knew that she was safe, safer than I could ever make her. Safe in the arms of Jesus. Why do we feel that way? 
Why do so many people believe in life after death? It is because the Bible says we were made that way. We were made for eternity, and God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. On our own, by our own wisdom, we can't figure it all out. It takes a revelation of the Spirit of God for our eyes to be open to understand what this is all about and how do we experience eternity? How do we get there to be with Jesus? It is only by placing our faith in Him. God says there's only one way, and it is through my Son, Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I know that sounds exclusive. And it is exclusive, but it's Jesus himself who said that. And why does he say that he's the only way? It's because he's the only one who ever dealt with the problem of our sin. It's because he's the only one who ever died for you and for me and rose again on our behalf. In the book of Hebrews... The writer of Scripture says this, that since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He understood our human condition. He understood our fear of death. He understood that we were slaves to sin and lost in that sin. And he entered into our world and he took the full force of the wrath of God in payment for the penalty for our sin. He died that we might live. You know, in the days after World War II, the United States was continuing to work on the development of an atomic bomb. And there was a young man who was a scientist that was there at Los Alamos where they were doing the testing of nuclear weapons. And he was doing some experiments with uranium to see kind of how much uranium it takes to cause this kind of chain reaction and how much you need for this critical mass. And in these experiments, he would bring together two kind of spheres of uranium and he would watch as this reaction began and then separate them. And he would use instruments to do that. But on one day, when he was doing that experiment, something went wrong. And he dropped his tool. And when he brought those two hemispheres together and he dropped that tool, they began to start this chain reaction that filled the room with this bluish kind of haze. And and he instinctively reached down and separated the two masses, exposing himself to the deadly radiation. He spared the lives of the others who were in that room and in that place, but he himself would die because of what he had done. And I think of Jesus who stepped into the radiation of man's sin, if you will, who put himself in the most critical point in order to deal with the problem that separated us from God for eternity. And he died in our place that we might live. The resurrection defeated the power of death. The Apostle Paul tells us how critical this was and how important the resurrection is. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is useless and we are still in our sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are also lost. 
If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul would go on to say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No one else can claim that victory. No one else has done what He has done. And Jesus would say to us, just as He said to the disciples, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? How do you get someone to believe that you have power over death? How do you get someone to believe that you can forgive their sins and give them eternal life? There's a story told by Max Lucado about a missionary who was working in the remote areas of Brazil. And he was working with a tribe that was kind of so far removed from civilization and medical care that, um, that there came a time when they needed uh, to be treated by a local infirmary and they were refusing to go to that infirmary. There was a contagious disease that was ravaging their population and the people needed to be treated. But what separated them from that infirmary was a river. And this river between them, they were superstitious about it and they did not want to cross that river because they believed if you go into that river, you're going to die. So how was this missionary to show them that you could cross the river safely and not die? Well, he told them how he had crossed the river to come to them. Didn't matter. He got into the water and he began to splash the water on himself or put his arms into the water. Didn't matter. And finally he decided the only way that I'm going to show them is I'm going to have to swim across this river myself. And so that's what he did. He dove into the water, went under the water and swam across to the other side. And when he came out, he sort of punched his fish in the air to say, you know, see, you know, you can do this. I'm not dead. This is not a river of death. And it was only then that they believed him and they did what was necessary to cross that river to get the help that they needed. And I think of what Jesus did to demonstrate that he had power over sin and over death. In his ministry, he healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, and he raised the dead. There was one occasion with a young boy where he brought him back to life. And people were still skeptical and said, I don't know if he really can do this. There was another occasion with a young girl where Jesus said, Tabitha, arise. And she came to life. And those who were the professional mourners outside of the home didn't really believe it, didn't trust him. And there was that time when Jesus came to the grave of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days in that tomb. And the people were weeping because of his death and the loss that they felt. And Jesus went to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And some believed, but many still doubted. It wasn't until Jesus entered the river of death himself and he went under the water and he came out on the other side 
that many chose to believe in him and saw the reality of, the, of Jesus, that he is alive and he is risen. And when he came out on the other side of Death's River, it was time to sing. It was time to celebrate because the resurrection defeated death. And thirdly, the resurrection restored hope. I think of Mary Magdalene, who was the first to see Jesus alive. Now that's remarkable in the record of what occurred on these days. Because at that time, a woman wouldn't have been able to give witness in a court of law. And so if you were going to tell this story and make it up, uh, you would have had someone like Peter or John be the first to see Jesus alive. Not Mary or any of the other women who did. But here it is in the account of how it actually happened. Mary Magdalene is the first to see Jesus alive. And when Mary came to the tomb that Easter morning, she wasn't expecting a resurrection. She was in a state of shock and grief. And we read about that in John's Gospel. Let me read for you from chapter 20, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking it was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now think about that. Think about the order even of what I have read. Mary came to the tomb. She's in this state of shock and grief. She sees the empty tomb, but the empty tomb will not take away her grief. She sees the angels. She hears their message that he is not here. He has risen from the dead. But that will not take away her grief. She sees Jesus, but she is still in such a profound state of grief that she thinks that, she, that he's a gardener and she is worried about the body of Jesus. Where have you taken him? She wants to see the body of Jesus. And it is not until Jesus speaks her name that she realizes that Jesus, her Lord, is alive from the dead. I think that's very interesting. You know, this week, it was kind of one of those interesting kind of timings when you get an email that's just very appropriate and it kind of brings to mind something even in the message. I got an email this week from someone who had thanked me for using their name and greeting them by name when they didn't think that I really knew them. And it was a reminder of how important it is. You know, when someone calls your name, Someone uses your name. I mean, that's really personal. That's, that's something that says that there's a relationship there and that they know you. 
when Jesus spoke her name. She knew immediately it was Jesus. And can you imagine what it's going to be like on that great day when we stand before the Lord and Jesus calls your name? Because He knows you and me. He knows your name and how personal and intimate that will feel as well. Jesus would make ten appearances to the disciples that are recorded in Scripture over a 40-day period. In Acts 1-3, it says that after his suffering, he showed himself to these men, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He wanted them to be absolutely convinced that he was alive because of what he was going to send them to do to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the disciples wrote these things down for our benefit, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection vindicated Jesus that he is Lord and Savior he is who he claims to be. The resurrection defeated death because he lives, all who believe in him will also live. And the resurrection restored hope that there is a day coming when God will make all things new. You know, in some ways, the world and the time in which we live is kind of like the disciples on that Saturday before Easter Sunday. You know, we look back on the events of Christ's death and resurrection, and we believe that he is risen and seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. But you know what? We still live in a world that has fallen, a world that still has this presence of evil, a world that's still marred by violence and injustice and sickness and death and loss and sorrow. All of those things are part of this reality. And we are waiting for that great day when he will make all things new. We're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus when we will come and establish his kingdom upon earth. And we're looking forward to that new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells and in which he will wipe away all our tears and all sorrow and sickness and death will be gone because of Jesus. We live just like the disciples by faith with our hope firmly grounded in him. But you know what? None of that will mean anything for you unless you believe. Until you come into a relationship with him, where you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's just the message that is there waiting. It's when we come to believe, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the truth of the gospel and we turn from our sin and turn to Christ that we are born again and the reality of the resurrection becomes our reality too. Would you like to place your trust in Jesus today? I want to give you an opportunity to do that as we close. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have because of Jesus. Thank you for the victory that you won on our behalf. And thank you, Jesus, that you are now seated at your Father's right hand, interceding for us. And we long for that day when you come back and you make all things new. And if you're here today and... Boy, you don't know Jesus and you would like to. Would you just simply open your heart to him and quietly say to him in your own heart, Lord Jesus, would you forgive my sins? I ask you to come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. 
thank you that you died on the cross for me. Jesus loves you, and he will do that. He'll come into your life, and he wants to have that relationship with you, and he wants you to get to know him better. Father, thank you for this great day and the hope we have in Christ. Amen.